Good day. Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Big thank you for listening, and make sure you hit that subscribe button on your smartphone or fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. We don't ask for much in return, though. We'd really be grateful if you could pop to iTunes, or it's now rebranded as uh, Apple Podcasts, um, which is just delivering podcasts through the podcast app, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, uh, such as those recently left by MM Burke 26 who comments, really enjoy listening to these podcasts. They're super informative, and having attended the RVC, it's good to hear again from my old clinicians. Keep going. So, so thanks for that, but I'm, I'm not quite sure what he means by old clinicians. But anyway, we'll, we'll gloss over that. <clears throat> so these five-star reviews, tweets, uh, really help our metrics that Brian and myself do not understand. So something to do with analytics of Apple Podcasts, make it easier for others to access this information. Um, now, uh, I, oh yes, I know from we're looking at uh, where people are actually downloading this information. So, so maybe for for this week, I know we have some Kiwi listeners out there. So it'd be great to if we can try and get a review from uh, New Zealand, please. So that's that's the challenge laid down. So today we're uh, um, very grateful to have uh, Jill Madison with us. So Jill is Professor of General Practice at the RBC and involved in a variety of things here um, and uh, more recently uh, in, in charge of the help of CPD, so including the Certificate of Advanced Veterinary Practice. Um, she still sees uh, consults and uh, uh, runs a number of very successful CPD courses throughout the world. Um, and a lot of it's focused on clinical reasoning, internal medicine, um, which is what we're going to talk about today. So thank you very much, Jill for joining Brian and I on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Don. <laughs> it's, 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 it's an honour. Uh, so another Sydney alumni uh, as, as myself. So you, you, you've been um, speaking about clinical reasoning and internal medicine for a variety of years. So what made you think to come to this format of um, approaching clinical cases? I was taught it. At University of Sydney, and and so it's, was was this the way that it was it was laid out, or have you modified it sort of over um, the, years? the 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 principal structure, particularly related to to elementary clinical science or GI clinical science, was absolutely taught by um, David Watson um, and Brian Farrow was very much in sort of in this mode. He'd come back from Cornell having done some work with Sandy Della Hunter and his approach to neurolocalization and defining the system, he and David thought, well, we must be able to expand this to other systems. So the elements of it, um, I can't remember all of my lectures because <laughs> they're a long time ago, but I absolutely remember that the approach to the GI signs, vomiting, diarrhea, weight loss and jaundice was very much taught along these lines. I guess what I have done, we have done in the intervening years is perhaps perhaps just refine it and define it a bit more for various systems and clarify it and made it more explicit, the, the, the questions. Um, because I was taught this way and because this is how I've always thought and it suits my thinking style, it, I find it hard to think of other ways to develop your clinical reasoning because there's only there's two ways we reason. One is what we call non-analytical. It's fast, it's immediate, we can't suppress it. Um, it's what we call pattern recognition illness scripts. Um, it's great, it works really well in certain circumstances, but it can really fail in others. And that entirely relies on experience and knowledge, basically. So you have to have seen stuff, you have to know stuff, you have to be able to put it all together. And that, of course, makes it incredibly hard for inexperienced vets, young graduates, or for experienced vets seeing unusual cases because they don't have an illness script to fall back on. And if you don't have an illness script to fall back on, 
or if your illness script is wrong, your pattern recognition is wrong, then what's been shown is that people go into what's called analytical reasoning and that's fine and there's been lots written about it but no one actually has said other than what we say is how to do it so that was the thing that's always driven me so it wasn't from a educational pedagogical background at all in fact I've only fairly recently discovered the educational pedagogical literature and been able to pronounce the word pedagogical which well took quite some time um, but saying, well, yes, we we go into analytical reasoning when our pattern recognition fails for whatever reason, is not there or fails, but what is that? So what we're trying to do is to give our students um, and vets that I lecture to a structure that they can apply kind of regardless of the problem. Now, it still requires knowledge. It doesn't replace knowledge. Um, it doesn't replace understanding. I think sometimes that's a misconception. You still need the knowledge. You still need to come up with a differential list, but the, the differential lists are a little bit more characterised. Um, so it's more the application of that knowledge. Yeah, it's, 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 it's making it so that you're... Well, first of all, I think almost the most important is that it gives you a structure for your history taking um, and it gives you a structure for your history taking and, and, and obviously there are the comm skills issue in history taking and how we run a consult, consult and all of that sort of stuff but it gives a structure because if what you're doing is driving your history taking going what are the problems this animal has and am I sure I know that they're truly the problem that the owner says it is and what are the important problems and what systems involved and how and the information I collect about that is just enormously helpful in making sure I come out of that consult um, with the information that I need rather than the other option is scrabbling around asking questions about every possible diagnosis for that particular clinical sign that might help me. So I find it incredibly efficient. I, I mean it becomes, I think it becomes part of your pattern recognition actually part of your well not pattern recognition per se but um your non-analytical thinking and we all do we all you know it's a it's a dual way we all use pattern recognition i use pattern recognition we we all do analytical reasoning to some description we sort of dig down and try to think through principles we're just trying to give it um a structure that makes it just just a bit easier to go into those principles. So, could you briefly explain explain the structure, please? So, say if you had a a, a vomiting six month old dog. Okay. So, so the first thing is that the owner says that the dog is vomiting, and your first question is, well, is it really vomiting? And that's so important. So, yep, most of them will be vomiting, but they could be regurgitating, they could be gagging. Um, and the consequences of getting it wrong are really big. You know, there are, there are quite a few dogs out there that have had hundreds of pounds, dollars, euros, whatever, spent on being investigated for vomiting that turned out to have regurgitation. And regurgitation tends to be a nasty clinical sign with nasty reasons most of the time. So... So you say, right, okay, well, first of all, I want to make sure this dog's vomiting, so what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to ask questions about it. So I, I know, so the knowledge part comes in, well, what does vomiting look like? What does regurgitation look like? How do I, how do I um, decide which one it is? And most of the time in the consult you'll go, yep, it's definitely vomiting, or, hmm, this sounds a bit odd, I think it might be regurgitating. Sometimes you go, I really don't know, in which case you know that, and so you say, well, part of my investigation is I've still got to define the problem. Um, and defining the problem is enormously important. Like, it's just so important. I mean, I've done... Um, I work in general practice now, but I see second opinions, and I've done referral work, you know, for many years. And as I always say in my lectures, 
It's not always the case by any means, but when a case goes really wrong, goes in the wrong direction, it's not unusual, let's put it that way, for the reason why it's gone in the wrong direction and the animal has ended up with the wrong diagnosis, the wrong treatment, dead, um, or the owner spending huge amounts of money before an answer's reached, is because the problems weren't defined in the first place, were incorrectly defined, weren't recognised. Um, and once you've defined the problem, then some people will go, right, I know for sure it's this problem, then I'll do a list of differentials. But we take it just one step further and say, OK, if, you've, if you're sure it's the problem that you think it is, then the next step would be, well, OK, what system's involved? And the basis of that is to say, so vomiting's the easiest one, but it applies to pr practically anything. An animal vomits, and they vomit because they've got gut disease or they've got non-gut disease. And that's pretty well known, but you need to make it explicit. And when they've got gut disease, one of the things is that most of the blood tests that you do don't tell you a thing. They don't tell you anything. They might, there can be clues, but they don't tell you a thing. Whereas when you've got non-gut disease, the blood test, unless it's brain disease, can tell you obviously loads of things. They can tell you that the liver's involved or the pancreas involved or the kidney's involved. They might not tell you what the actual diagnosis is, but they can tell you what organ's involved. And so, um, and the other thing is that if they've got gut disease, then there are some gut diseases which, of course, we know we treat symptomatically, like dietary intolerance, you know, gastritis for any reason, and there are others that we don't. Whereas most most non-gut reasons for vomiting, you know, perhaps except maybe pancreatitis, and the pancreas just wants to be the gut, so it, you know, it's got just pretends to be the gut anyway. Um, they're really not going to respond symptomatically. So it's and then and then you sort of move to well if it is primary gut disease what diseases am I thinking are likely that's a differential list if it is secondary gut disease what differentials am I thinking likely that's your differential list and so you could say well why don't you just have a list of differentials for vomiting and you could you absolutely could um, but there's a long list of differentials for vomiting and if you have moved to where this animal and the clues that you have gathered give you a pretty strong idea this is primary gut disease. So it's a six-month-old dog. It was perfectly happy. It's been vomiting. It vomited, you know, an hour after eating, three days in a row. Um, it it it's otherwise seems pretty happy. It's got a bit depressed today. Then it's most likely that dog's going to have primary gut disease. And doing loads of bloods on it is really a waste of time and money. might help the practice profit, but from a medical point of view it's not particularly useful other than if you want some screening background now I'm not saying don't do the bloods but recognize they're not going to give you the answer why this animal is vomiting whereas if you've got a dog that has been you know losing weight been a bit off for about a month it's perhaps drinking more than usual um, and it started vomiting yesterday then that's far more likely that that dog's going to have metabolic disease so non-gut disease and therefore your bloods are going to be helpful and it's not going to be something that you fasting it and giving it a shot of serenia is going to fix. And it's, I think, and a lot of people will say, well, that's really obvious. But for students, it's not that obvious. And for very experienced clinicians, they're doing this, but they're doing it in their brains, not showing their brains to the students. So for the students, they don't see what the thought process was that got there. And for most students, it's certainly at the RVC, they're working with um, vets in our you know, in the Queen Mother Hospital, who are enormously experienced, knowledgeable experts in their field, in their particular field. 
for some of them, put them out of their field and they'd be struggling, but they're absolute experts in their field and their depth of knowledge and understanding is, is just enormous and the students don't have that to call on. So they need a way to be able to, to see what the process is. And for most clinicians, even when they say to me, I don't use this system, and I have a conversation with them and it turns out they do. They just don't really... It's, so it's so innate to them. They say, well, of course... Of course it could be vomiting because of gut disease or non-gut disease. Or of course this epistaxis could be um, a bleeding disorder or a local disorder and the clues that I look for. Um, but that's not explicit to the students. And so it's really just... It's not rocket science. Sometimes I think one of the problems is that, that students and vets think it's too easy and therefore it can't work. But it does work. It really works. So, so after you've de defined and refined sort of the the, the system, then then where do you go with with that? that well, then you, well then you're going to say, okay, so I mean the vomiting dog is the easiest one, but it does, as I said, it works. Some of the problems have sort of their own little kind of system questions, but um, so then at, in that consult you're going to make a judgment and you have to make a clinical decision. And if you're in general practice, you've got a ten minute consult, and in that ten minute consult, well certainly where we are. Um, maybe if you're really lucky, 15 minutes. Um, you have to assess that patient and you have to now make some decisions. Are you going to treat this animal symptomatically? Are you going to talk to the owner about further diagnostic tests? So then my conversation would be um, with the owner and in my head would be, this is a six-month-old dog. It's been vomiting for three days. It's related to eating. Um, it's still bright and happy, but it's getting a bit woofy. Yep. It could be dietary intolerance, but this relationship to eating's bothering me a bit. Um, what am I concerned about? What would be appropriate differentials for that six-month-old puppy? And six-month-old puppy, of course, foreign body is going to be there. So for that dog, I have the conversation with the owner and say, look, the most likely thing is there's something wrong with the puppy's gut. It might be that it's just eaten something that's irritated its stomach. But if it has got a foreign body or an obstruction, that's a really serious problem. We need to, we need to investigate that. Um, now, I don't think that dog's likely to have metabolic disease. Would it mean I'm not going to do bloods on it? It'll depend on the owner finances. If I've really got to choose and say, well, what's going to give me the biggest bang for my bucks for that puppy, I want to radiograph its abdomen, I want to get it on fluids, um, I might do a PCV and a total protein, but I'm not particularly interested in its biochemical profile. If money's not an issue, then of course I'll do it as a sort of complete background for that puppy. Um, if, on the other hand, I've got that older dog, um, now the owner might say, well, I don't really want to go ahead so that with the young puppy going back to the young I don't really want to go ahead with that. You know, that sounds a bit expensive. I want to treat it symptomatically. Well, the conversation I'll have will be, OK, we can do that for you. We can give him an antiemetic, maybe. We can say, don't feed him or feed him bland food. But if this puppy keeps vomiting, this is what the options are. You know, this is not something, if it doesn't go away. And you've said to the owner, this is what the options are and these are the choices that you make. So... We've got to help owners make decisions and we have to make recommendations. And one of the biggest challenges it can be, we know that owners don't follow our recommendations, often, um, particularly in general practice, but they will follow them, they're more likely to follow them if you're able to explain clearly why you think a certain 
diagnostic or treatment pathway is appropriate. So, you know, if you just say, oh, he looks really sick, I better do spend, you know, say 100 quid, 200 quid of your money and get some bloods and take a radiograph, then that's not really making clear to the owner why they need to spend that. If you if you say, look, I'm really concerned, yes, it could be something simple, but in this puppy, it's a puppy, um, they eat things, and if it's stuck in its intestine, that's really life-threatening and that's why I need to follow that up and if the radiograph shows there's no evidence of obstruction terrific um, then I'm being clearer with my owner about and they're making a decision based on more information so in the older dog I'd be saying well you know this has been going on for a while this is really suggesting that we've got metabolic disease going on I can't go any further I can't give you any medication I can't do anything until I know more information now if they choose and say I don't want to do that well then that's their choice you know, owners are um, extraordinary in their their um, their desire or their belief that you can just kind of look at an animal and put your hand on its head and then it'll get better. You know, I saw a dog last night at the practice and it had a black spot on its tongue, lovely black Labrador, and a black spot in the middle of its tongue that they said they hadn't seen before. And I said, yep, there's a black spot in the middle of its tongue and it's not raised and it's not, you know, it's not a growth and it looks like pigment. Well, I need to be sure. And I said, well, the only way you're going to be sure is if for us to biopsy. You know, you have to. There's a level of there's a level of owners wanting you to give them reassurances, and sometimes you just can't do that. So that's where the conversation goes. So it's it's really in its essence, it's saying what problems does this animal have? Am I sure the problems that are of concern? I, they are true. Like they are what the owner thinks they are, or I think they are. Sometimes that's easy to sort out, sometimes it's not. You know, is this animal fainting or is it fitting? Um, you know, is this, is this red urine due to blood? Is it due to haemoglobin? Is this, um, you know, there's all sorts of things. And a lot of, it, a lot of it is just common sense too. It's digging down deep with the principles. One of the things that, I don't know, somehow we've lost in the education system and I think it starts well before they get to university is, is that students don't seem to be able to use their common sense to work things out. You know, if I say to them, okay, you've got a dog and it's bleeding from the nose, before you start worrying about causes of epistaxis, be it a coagulopathy or a local disease like foreign body or tumour, what could look like epistaxis but isn't, you know, that isn't bleeding from inside the nose? Well, you know, common sense says, well, maybe it's got a cut under its, under its nose. You know, maybe that's the problem. Now, that could still be a real problem. Or... Um, you know, you've got an animal and it's passing digested blood, melina. Well, fine. So it could be bleeding into its gut. Fine. And that could be because it's got a coagulopathy or because it's got something irritating the gut. Um, and that could be due to something primarily structurally wrong with the gut or something outside of the gut that's causing the gut to be damaged, like hyperadrenocorticism or nonsteroidals or, or liver disease or, you know, occasionally gastronoma or whatever. But the first thing we've got to say is, well, where else could that blood come from? Well, common sense says, well, if this animal's bleeding in its mouth or bleeding in its nose and it's going backwards and it's swallowing blood or it's bleeding from its nose and it's licking its nose, it's swallowing blood. So those sort of really common sense questions are at the, at the heart of defining the problem. A lot of it's just common sense. Do you think a lot of it is made and sort of more in the in the history and probably a, a good physical exam? So getting the history questions right yep. and probably like the actual complaint of the owner if we if we think that 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 is um, what what is actually sort of going on and obviously those hard questions about 
you know, what is vomiting and regurgitation and, and definitely the same, like coughing sometimes and yeah. get confused and all sorts of things, can't yeah. it? But it's, it's trying to capture that moment in time and probably we're just very busy and we try and skip over that. But then the worst thing, because there's a number of things in like in the medical field, you know, the worst thing to give a patient is a diagnosis because yeah. once you give that, then everything else sort of flitters away and then all the other information sort of just disappears yeah. as you, you ignore that. And then, you know, as you said, if you if you see a patient as a, as a second opinion or referral case then what's going to happen is actually you, you go back to the beginning exactly you, know, you, you exactly. need to you need to start again exactly you know, and just say so so is this actually what we're, we're dealing with and, and go go from that Exa- exactly agree with you part, part of the problem here although we you know we have a number of niche areas in in uh, in, in the in the qmh and we do that a number of times though everyone's done the hard work for us so they've already treated or waited or or done you know knocked knocked off a few of the differentials so they are yep. presented almost as a as a package of of what's going yeah. on and it's a, it's a difficult thing to see as well i imagine because then you you see that but then you work it up to a whatever gold standard or you know or depending on the finances of the patient but you work it up to a level that is very different in that 10 minute consult when you're yep. trying to make a decision initially of a vomiting dog do i let it ride or do yep. i do something exactly you know? so, you so i think i think there's i think there's there's two there's two points there one is that the history and the physical examination are so, so important. And I think one of the things, the reason why I am so anti give me all the differentials for the vomiting dog is because I think it almost it doesn't, it doesn't help with the history very much. And so in people it's been shown that, you know, basically pretty much 80% of the diagnosis comes from the 60% comes from the history, 20% from the physical exam and 20% from the lab work, you know, the actual crucial, crucial thing. So the history is absolutely important. And the problem now we have is that there are so many tests available that um, we have vets, students and vets who go, well, I'll just test. And they think that, and it's been shown very clearly in the medical literature, that doctors place far too much reliance on test results and they lose the history results. We observe in our vets when the courses that we run um, that often they'll they'll be very good, you know, they've been trained very well to write their problem list and define and refine their problem and system, and then they just abandon it when they get some blood results, and sort of take the blood results as the as the first thing that they see, and then kind of run off with that. But the issue also of the difference between a general practice and a specialty practice is really profound, and they're both so important, and I think it's both so important that students are exposed to to them. I mean, I think that the richness of and the inspiration of what students can learn in our referral hospital and the the, the things that they see, they see what's possible, they also, you know, with good teachers, doesn't matter how complicated the case is, it can be absolutely rich learning material about really important things. But, as you say, in the specialty environment, the goal is to solve the problem and the owner is there to have the problem solved. It, it may not be able to be solvable, but it's not usually going to be because... Um, they're not interested in it being solved. They're about to invest a huge amount of money or their insurance company is and they're going to... um, The aim of everybody in the QMH is to solve the problem. And when you're in general practice, you've got 10, 15 minutes, sometimes it might be longer depending on what part of the world you're in, and you're going to be dealing with what I say three, three types of cases... You obviously spend a lot of time doing with the primary healthcare stuff, and that's really important from all sorts of reasons. You're going to be dealing with the pretty straightforward problems that don't require a whole lot of 
thinking about diagnosis but might be challenging to manage. So it might be your corneal ulcer or your bad ear or, you know, something like the splinter in the foot or the wound and all of that sort of stuff. And then you've got your unwell animals and for some of those they may be the worried well so the owner is concerned about something um, and over concerned or they may be truly unwell but dealing with the the client who is the representation of the worried well requires you to be very clear about how you think about the problems that they're saying is being presented to you and the problems of the animal that is unwell we then now have the 10-minute, 15-minute consultation where we have to sort of try to get to the nub of it, at least to be able to decide what we're going to do to progress our understanding of the case. We've got more of a discussion about finances than you do in specialty practice, a lot more discussion about finances. We have to make decisions that may not be perfect and they're... Whether it's gold standard or not, I don't think... I think, that's a, I think it's a poor phrase in a way because... What it is is what's the right decision for this animal and this owner in this circumstance? And that can range. So, yes, there can be um, perhaps what's called the gold standard, but it might not be the right answer. So if you say you've got a Daki, Dachshund, and it's gone off its legs and it's come in and it's got back pain and everything is telling you that this dog slipped a disc. Now, you know, you could say, well, the gold standard would be to radiograph it um, and then to refer it to have surgery. But the reality is that an awful lot of those dogs, if you cage rest them, are going to do okay. So do you really need to radiograph it? What's the point? You know, what's the point? Um, why put it through an anaesthetic and radiograph its back to tell you something that you already know? You know, Holger will say, neurology, you know most of it in the consult room. You know, most of it in the consult room. That, you know, good neurologists can localise the lesion. You know, MRI and CT for them is just a sort of bit of a toy really even though everyone thinks they need it you know um, endoscopy for GI stuff well the number of vomiting dogs and cats that need endoscopy is minuscule minuscule um, it doesn't mean there aren't ones that need it but so the balancing in in general practice about what you're going to do requires some really clear thinking and I will controversially say much clearer clinical reasoning almost than you need and especially practice because we don't have the luxury of just saying oh well we'll admit it and just run every test and even in that environment if you run every test if you haven't got the clinical reasoning behind it to help you interpret those tests but we have to we have to persuade clients more we have to be clearer about what the possibilities are and we need to be able to explain it in a way to the client that they understand and that's why having a really efficient form of clinical reasoning that helps you get through that consult so that you've got time to do some of the hard stuff is really, really important. And, you know, someone could... The, one of the reasons why I um, still consult... Now, I admit, you know, it's sort of half a day every fortnight and an evening every fortnight and the occasional Saturday every month at a local practice. But one of the reasons why I do that is because I very strongly believe I can't talk about this stuff and not be able to prove that I can do it. And I think it's fair to say, and I was consulting last night, I think it's fair to say that in the, the small practice where I consult, um, all of the nurses there and the reception staff, they say to me, we just love being on with you because you just get through consults so fast. And it's not like I'm turning owners away. It's not the owners are perfectly happy. We have great chats. We have fun with the animals. But 
because I've done this for so long and it's so embedded, I, it it just happens very quickly and therefore I've got time. I'm not faffing around worrying about some stuff that I know my colleagues and particularly less experienced ones, you know, really, really experienced colleagues can go boom, 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 boom. Um, but, you know, I, w I want to help the, the less experienced, the students. I'm really interested in helping vets in developing, um, the developing world where small animal practice is emerging and their education is really, really poor. And I find it really, really fulfilling teaching in those countries like the Philippines, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, although Thailand's very evolved now, um, in Vietnam, because in those countries, the the people in small animal practice who are really leading those countries are really inspirational and they recognise that what their vets need is they need the thinking skills. They recognise that, yes, they need more resources, but they need the thinking skills. And so we just have just a great time there because the vets go, yep, this, is, this isn't costing me, this is my brain, you know, so let me develop my brain. Um, so, yeah, so I go on and on and on and say that the most important clinical tool is your brain. So has this system um, ever caught you out? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Because, you know, you're dealing with a biological system and animals don't always follow the rules, you know, so there are rules, if you like. There are guidelines about, you know, what looks like primary GI, what looks like secondary, what doesn't... doesn't um, but it's not often, and it's not often in general practice. One of the problems in referral practice is, as you say, you see weird stuff. You know, you see stuff where the common diagnoses have been eliminated. You see stuff which really is not following the rules is, like, weird, like, really weird. Um, not all the time, but it's so it can, be, it can be quite challenging in that environment. But in the first opinion environment, and often when it, when it catches me out... Well, not often because it doesn't often catch me. But when it does catch me out, the times when I reflect on it is where I haven't, I haven't asked the right questions. I've probably not either... Sometimes, sometimes knowledge catches you out. Sometimes falling into pattern recognition catches you out. Um, sometimes just, uh, just being, being limited. So I remember seeing a dog that was in, in the practice and it, I sort of came in one Saturday morning and this dog was in and, and its history was that it was intermittently sort of um, mentally aware, not aware. So it was sort of would become obtunded and then it would be fine and then it would whatever. And it was also drinking a huge amount of water. Now, I did my PhD on hepatic encephalopathy. So my pattern recognition brain went that dog could have a padding encephalopathy because that's, you know, that's a knowledge thing I've got which just sort of sits there. And then I went, no, hang on a minute, you know, so sometimes I have to say to myself, naughty, naughty, step back and say, okay, so this dog has got varying levels of, of awareness and it's drinking loads of water. And that can be, as we know, can be because there's either kidney dysfunction, primary or secondary, or because it's got primary polydipsia. So this dog's either got a metabolic disease that's doing something or there's something going on in its head. You know, there's something happening in its head. And I think, and it turned out to have a pituitary tumour. But I was kicking myself because I was just a bit too hot to trot that it had hepatic encephalopathy, which it could easily have had, but my pattern re recognition brain and my experience was kind of biasing me a little bit and there's an incredibly unusual diagnosis but so what caught me out there was was just I still thought outside of the box if you like but I was so convinced it probably had a padding encephalopathy um 
I use it sometimes, you know, I pattern recognise all the time. You know, I've been a vet for a long time. I've seen a lot of stuff. But I do sometimes go, no, step back. Step back and have a think. And then, but I think for a lot of the stuff I'm pattern recognising, but I've already done the problem solving. Like it's already there. So, so do you think that's what happens that... That the because they, they talk about this and Daniel Carnegie uh, Carnegie, the thinking fast and so so you, you know I, I imagine that uh, to to build up that fast thinking is actually doing the, the slow thinking many, yeah, many times so yeah. so actually it, it sort of morphs in a, a certain certain period of time yeah it's morphing and so one of the things I say in my lectures is that what it does is that it that it makes your pattern recognition. Um, better, more sound, because you kind of immediately eliminate things that aren't possible. You know, what I find when people, when they pattern recognise, is that, and I think, if I think about it, one of the problems is that they pattern recognise and will usually focus on one clinical sign or maybe a bunch of clinical signs, but then the structure of being able to decode the history in the physical exam and being able, there are some steps in it sort of like saying, well, even really early on before you define or refine the system is, well, what are the problems this animal is showing? And do I think all of the problems are likely related to one disorder? Or is there something that is telling me that maybe it's not? You know, the chronology is really different or there's really odd body systems involved here that I'm finding it really hard to put it together. So I have to think, well, maybe I've got more than one problem going on. And that's a really important step, a really important step, particularly with animals that have chronic signs and acute signs, because if you just assume that everything's related, you, you'll lose the clues that are telling you. So, for example, a case I use in one of my courses is, you know, a dog comes in and the reason why the owner's presented it is because it's a middle-aged dog, um, it's been vomiting for about a week related to eating, it was eating fine, but the last three days it stopped eating, um, it sort of vomited about, you know, almost immediately after eating or, you know, 15 minutes later, um, um, on physical exam, it's got acute abdominal pain. If I said that as that history to anybody, they go, well, that's really interesting, vomiting related to eating. It was bile, so it's definitely vomiting. It's related to eating. So really, I'm going, this dog's either got primary GI disease or pancreatitis. I mean, that's pretty much... I, I can pattern recognise that if you like, but actually I'm system recognising as well. But if that, in addition to that history, the dog has been PUPD for three months um, and has been had an in increasing appetite over that period of time, again, if I took that part of the history and said to a vet, so this dog's PUPD for three months, it's happy and bright, but it's eating a lot, hasn't lost a lot of weight, um, and funny, it's got a bit of a pot belly. Um, and there's nothing else going on with it, then, of course, pattern recognition, you'd go, well, that dog could easily have hyperadrenocorticism, maybe diabetes, why hasn't it lost weight? Um, there's not a lot else that will do that, you know, there's not, and mm. particularly if it doesn't have diarrhoea. But when you put the, the, the chronic and the acute history together, what I find is that many vets trying to learn this system will then assume that the chronic signs must be related to the acute signs and will only consider things that that will consider causes of PUPD that could cause vomiting but just are ridiculous you know the animal's not going to be hypercalcemic for three months it's not going to have hyperadrenocorticism for three months it's not going to have liver disease for three months with an increasing appetite so it's kind of so the structure of being able to structure that problem list and um do that thinking helps with the pattern recognition. That's a very long-winded way of saying it. So it helps with the pattern recognition because it allows you to kind of discard the things that just don't make sense. 
one of the questions you might want to ask me, Dom, is isn't this the same as algorithms that you can, you know, that are in textbooks, like particularly in Ettinger? And to a certain extent, they are. I mean, you look at the algorithms and there are decision points and you say, well, if it's got this, you go this way, and if it's got this, you go this way. And they are, um, and, it, and it can be, absolutely. And I'm not saying the algorithms aren't helpful, but the algorithms in those textbooks are specific for the problem and you have to either remember it for each problem or go and look it up for each problem. So that's okay, that's fine. And often they're, they're, they're very logical, obviously. What this system is, it's putting broad principles that are applicable to any problem. So you don't have to remember the pathway for vomiting versus the pathway for epistaxis versus the pathway for the lame dog versus the pathway for the pruritic dog. The principles are the same. And so, yes, then the differentials are different and the clues are different, obviously, and the knowledge that comes into it is different for each student. But the principle is the same, the overarching principle. What are the problems? Do I think they're all related to the same disorder or not? Of the problems that are there, am I sure the problem is what it seems to be? And then defining and refining the system and then moving on eventually to lesion and saying, if it's primary, could it be this? If it's secondary, could it be that? Yeah, it's, it's uh, fantastic. Thank you for asking uh, that uh, that question <laughs> as as well. I, th I think the problem, like with algorithms in general, as you, as you said, they, they, they're really used for specific purposes, aren't they? So you need to know exactly what you're dealing with. So say... I have a urine tract infection. What do I do? Yeah, you know that that can that can help. And also, interestingly, in some of the things read so for for like the um, uh, ATLS, so so advanced trauma life support in people, they say that it works really well if people don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. But once you know what you're doing, then it gets really awkward because yeah. if you follow an algorithm and you know what you're doing, then people can get lost and actually not do the things that they yeah. can actually do maybe potentially better. So it depends on who it's aimed for yeah. as, as, as well. I mean, I think it's similar to, um, well, you know, people talk about protocols um, and I know with anaesthetic protocols and, and, and speaking to, to um, you know, Liz, for example, that protocols are great in that people know what is going to happen but in the individual dog or cat it might not be the right the protocol might not be the right protocol for that animal and the problem with the algorithms for the diagnostic algorithms is that often they skip the essential first step which is defining the problem you know they start at a point where um let's say you've assumed it's vomiting but some of them don't um so they've got a place but I just think that for my brain this works better because I don't have to remember loads of stuff. Well, they say that the proof of the pudding is in the eating and I know your course has been sort of sold out, the one that run through, uh, you know, maybe competitors in Australia. But uh, the, the You can say <laughs> University of Sydney. It's OK, Hugh. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, and that's been sold out for, for the last sort of 20 years. So I imagine that, that, that people, you know, I, I suppose you, I, I think is what you said, that it's, very, it's good to ingrain with students, but because you do need actually fundamental knowledge, sometimes you need to actually have some experiential learning before you're coming back to this as yeah. well. Like yeah. it helps if you have that as a starting point, but having it at a starting point without any knowledge, you, 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 you're trying to pull information from, from everywhere. And I can understand why it's difficult to embed as, a, as, a, as an undergraduate. I, 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 I take some point. I think, I think it can be... Um, I don't think it's difficult to embed necessarily. I think what happens, though, and I've only really become... 
explicitly aware of this more recently. I think what happens though is that our students who get it go, yeah, yeah, define the problem, define the system, and then they stop. And then the clinician goes, yeah, but I need some differentials. And they go, oh. <laughs> and then they might say, well, I thought I didn't have to have differentials for this. You do have to have differentials. It's not that you... It's just that your, your differentials are structured. It's not a long list of... You know, the most common way that clinicians, be it here or in practice, talk to students is say, so what are your differentials for this animal? And what we're trying to get the students to do and get the clinicians to support them doing is to just take the steps in between to say, well, the problems I've identified as this, I'm sure it's vomiting or I'm sure it's got diarrhoea, um, I think it's small bowel, um, it's small bowel diarrhoea, I think it's primary GI disease, now my differentials are such and such or whatever. So that knowledge thing is what's catching them, I think, but it needs to be, that needs to be built as well. Um, and that needs to, they need help with that. So... And we have, I have quite a few people who come on, particularly my online course for the RVC, CPD, who have been RVC grads. And, I mean, this hasn't been embedded in the course. It's been in the course for quite a while, but it was initially electives and then it was... And anyway, now it's more embedded. But they'll say, I was taught this at uni, but I've only used it a bit or I've only used it for difficult cases and I need to refresh it. And they come to it with that knowledge. You know, when our interns come back and I talk to them and if they're RVC grads, um, some of them will be honest and say, no, I haven't been using it. A lot will say, yep, I've used it but I need to refresh it. So, yes, it's like everything we do, isn't it? I mean, everything we, we try to teach the students, we often then go and do the same thing for veterinarians because they're coming at it with a different knowledge base and a different experience. Um, and, in fact, it's, in lots of ways it's easier with the students because they don't have any other option. Like, you know, they, don't, they go, well, this makes sense. Why wouldn't you do it this way? Whereas for experienced vets you've actually got to break their pattern. You've got to break their pattern recognition. Then they think, oh, you don't want me to pattern recognition. I go, no, it's not that I don't want you to pattern recognition. Recognise, I want you to step away from it, at least to start with, to help build that problem-solving skill. Because you don't teach pattern recognition. It's not taught. It just happens. So if you're going to teach something, you have to start with the building blocks. It's sort of... Um, certain people that we know would think this is a ludicrous analogy for me to make but you know if someone plays golf and plays golf a lot and then they go and have a lesson and the and the pro deconstructs their golf swing and then they go well this is really hard and then they rubbish for the next game so well I don't want to do that again but the point is they're now thinking about it and so that deconstructing so you're moving from a, a position of um, conscious incompetence to conscious competence, which is where you're thinking about it and it seems a bit slow and clunky, to unconscious competence where it just happens. And that's what we're aiming for. And that takes practice, 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 practice. But the good thing is, they, they, with, a, with a long career, you know, it's something that you can uh, knock off through through that time. It's something, you know, continual development, yeah, which is yeah. really part of the joy of, of being in a profession full stop, isn't it? You know, it is. And I think this brings... I've had, I've had many vets tell me that this um, learning this approach and being able to practice it has actually brought the joy back to their... to practice because, you know, that... Difficult medical cases are scary. You know, they're difficult. Their interactions with the owners can be difficult. Things can go wrong. Um, and it can really be a frustration and a dampener of the enjoyment of practice. So I've had various people say, I was about to leave practice and I discovered this. Um, I now enjoy it. 
Um, I used to run a mile when I saw a dog with diarrhoea. Now I run towards it, you know, so... <laughs> Strange. <laughs> um, but uh, I know you've got to get off, but, but thank you very much for your time, Joe. We normally we put a, a, a few sort of show notes. I might put a, a couple of uh, links, but uh, um, you can have a look at... Uh, the, there's, a, there's a book that uh, Jill and, and uh, Holger Volk and, and uh, Jill's husband, David Church, have uh, put together called Clinical, Clinical Reasoning in Small Animal Practice that was published last year. I believe by Wiley Blackwell, um, so I'll put a link onto onto that uh, as as well. So it, it's it's uh, it's it's definitely worth a read, um, and uh, and and quite quite uh, quite readable actually, which is which is always good. So we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. So many thanks for your time today, Jill. Thanks, Tom. And uh, thanks again for you for for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your uh, on your on whatever smartphone that you have, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you could leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. And don't forget to tell your friends. Um, so we'll, as we said, we'll place that link for the for the for the book and in the show notes. Um, so just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine, and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions from this podcast, please get in touch. So you can either email me um, dbarfield at rbc ac.uk or tweet at Dom Barfield. Um, I suppose you'd just like to say there's a, a sad time for an event in, in uh, Minnesota and one of my classmates, uh, Justine Rizchek or uh, Diamond, um, has sadly passed away. So uh, a special thought to all her friends and families and those listening from the class of 2002 in Sydney. So until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>